One Hope Church. On through the book of Matthew, we're in chapter 14 uh, this morning, so we're about at the halfway point uh, through the gospel, and we're going to keep on rolling through. We're going to try to cover um, all of chapter 14 this morning if we can, or we'll move kind of quickly, so hang in there and, and try to stay with. Um, and let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. As Derek prayed, we're thankful that you're with us, God, that you're for us, that you um, love us so much that you've given us your Son. Um, and as we see your Son, Jesus, and all his uh, power, um, or at least in part of his power in this lesson this morning, we, we're so thankful that we have a, a Savior who is who is risen, um, a king who is victorious. We're thankful that we worship the true and living God. We thank you, God, that um, you've given us your, your plan and your way. And um, Lord, you've been so gracious to us. Lord, um, we all know and admit that we are not worthy of, of your presence. We're not worthy of your love or your grace. And yet, in your abundance, you still give it to us. Help us not to take it for granted this morning. Um, help us to be thankful people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let's read uh, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14. It says, At that time, Herod... The Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her, although Herod wanted to put him to death. He feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, and he sat and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported it to Jesus. Now, um, this scene is a powerful scene um, that we have. We see Herod, um, the Tetrarch, also in, um, in history known as Herod Antipas. Um, his father is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who ordered for the children, two, male children, two years older, two years old and younger, um, you know, in Bethlehem and in that area to be killed. Um, the family was known for its ability to be brutal. Um, this Herod is also the same Herod that we see at the crucifixion, you know, of Jesus um, coming up in in coming chapters, and so um, he had taken. Um, Herodias to be his wife, even or to be his, um, and even though he is, she is the wife of his brother Philip. 
So the the daughter who dances is both his niece um, and his stepdaughter in a sense. So it's a pretty you know messed up you know affair. And John the Baptist um, publicly denounced what Herod was doing when he stole when Herod stole his brother's wife and was living with her. Um, John the Baptist called this wrong and sinful. Um, you know, he spoke truth to power. Um, he wasn't concerned that because of, you know, Herod's position over him, authority over him in a human sense that could have him put in jail, could have him killed. Um, he still felt it was necessary to instruct the people and for all to know that this was wrong in the sight of God. Um, it was even wrong according to the Roman culture. The Roman culture was very sinful, but even according to their own ways, this was still a bad thing to do. Okay, I mean, people still agreed, you know, you shouldn't go and take your brother's wife for yourself. Like, he's still living and all of that. You know, that's, that's not, a, not a good thing to do. So, you, as you can imagine, he wasn't too happy about... Um, John's public condemnation of him. He, and, and certainly Herodias was not uh, so, so pleased uh, about this. Um, and so, you know, it says here that Herod, you know, wanted to put him to death. You see some confliction within him. He wants to put him to death, but he fears the crowd, you know, because he's still got to rule over these people, right? And so he doesn't want, you know, insurrections. You know, what Generally, what those in, in the Roman Empire who were put in charge over a territory, you didn't think want news going back to Rome that there were problems in your territory, that there were rebellions and revolts and soldiers dying. You know, that's not good news. And you could get, you know, replaced if there's too many of these reports coming that in your area there are problems. And so, you know, on a personal level, he may have wanted to kill John the Baptist, but on a political level... It's better just to keep him alive and keep him in prison, right? And so there's a conflict within him. He's also, um, you know, hearing more from John the Baptist. There are other Gospels that, that he calls from time to time. John the Baptist come and talk to him, and he's, you know, afraid of what John the Baptist has to say. Um, and so then you have this event where his niece, you know, slash stepdaughter, you know, dances before the guests. He's pleased with it all. Everybody's happy. He says, I just, you know, probably some, I'm just going to imagine, and I didn't specifically say it here, but I imagine there's some, some alcohol um, present to induce this sort of, you know, offer of, yeah, whatever you want, you can have. There's probably some substances involved in uh, that sort of decision making there. Just, I don't think that's far fetched. It's a big party. Um, and so she says, after speaking with her mother, you know, like, what should I ask for? Ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now that shows some vindictiveness and, you know, like when you can have basically anything you want, you can be like, you know, I want the nicest house in the nicest place. And Herod would have been, it's yours. You know, throw whoever's in that house out, put her in, you know, I mean, like, Whatever she wanted, she could have. And of all the things in the world to ask for, she asked for this. 
the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so it says, you know, he's that Herod is conflicted about this, that he's he's not happy um, about this, but he's made an oath. There's witnesses to his oath. He feels like he has to, you know, follow through with it. Um, and you know, that's one thing about sin. Usually, like sin digs its heels in and keeps on going. You know, there's not a point here where he repents. You know, he had an opportunity even still to say. I did a foolish thing. I was wrong. You know, there's part of his pride that forces him to continue on with this. You know, that sin of pride where he doesn't have the humility to stop and to say, I was wrong. You know, you can't do this. You know, he doesn't want to take the personal hit to his pride. Um, And so John the Baptist is indeed um, beheaded. And then... Um, his disciples come and take away his body and bury it, and they report it to Jesus. Now, you could imagine Herod then hearing about the miracles of Jesus and, you know, what's going on in his head. He understands this concept of a resurrection, you know, because it's been taught to him. You know, John the Baptist has told him about this, this, you know, what's going to happen. And, um, you know, and so he's, you know, jumping to this conclusion. It's the wrong conclusion, but you could see, like, kind of some fear and terror in him about the, the possibility that John the Baptist might have come back, you know, from the dead. And, what could, you know, if he's got this power, like, what could happen to him um, in the future? You imagine he had some sleepless, you know, nights, you know, about this, about his, his own guilt of what he had done. But also this fear of what if, what if someone comes back to get me? You know, if he's got that sort of, sort of power. Um, and so there we have it again. You know, we've, you know, I'm not going to beat this over the, the head this morning, but, you know, just um, we have to keep in mind in our lives that following the will of God does not mean easy, does not mean um, everything is, you know, roses and apple pies and, you know, beautiful sunrises and sunsets. That there's difficulties that can come, and you don't know what your lot is. You know, you don't know. You have to just trust that what God has for you is best, and that you're in His hands. That nothing outside of His will can happen to you. That at minimum, you know, God permitted John the Baptist to be executed, even though John the Baptist was doing the will of God and doing exactly what God had wanted him to do. Now, again, the closeness of John the Baptist to God means that he did not have any regret. You know, he's not sitting there about to be ahead and go, you know, I wish I hadn't been so obedient to God. That's not in his thought process. You know, he, he's, he, he dies in peace going to be with his God. You know, and, and that's one of the things that we need to understand about death is that unless the return of Jesus happens in your lifetime, you know, we're all going to die. It's just a matter of years in between, right? And so I understand, I'm, don't misunderstand me, I'm not thinking that we should you know, look forward to an early death or anything of that matter. But for John the Baptist, doing the will of God, it's like, you know, if he gets killed at 35 or he gets, I'm, it's actually, well, less than that, you know, he's early 30s. He gets killed in early 30s. 
or at 80, he's done the will of God. And his eternity, the big part, is all there, there before him. Because what we have in this life, you know, if, if we were, you know, to go to the beach, imagine where the beach and the sand on the beach represents, you know, time and eternity, and you pick up one grain of sand, that's your life. That's your life. Just one grain. And the, and the rest of it, going on to infinity, is what comes after this life. What you have here is, you know, what we have here is just a speck, just a dot. And so it's better to be, you know, doing the will of God here and now. And, and we can say that we understand it theoretically. But then, you know, there's still that desire that we have for self-preservation, which is a normal, natural, human, you know, response. But we cannot allow our desire for self-preservation to override our desire to live for and to do the will of God. A preset to myself, you know, this morning. I have a good friend, um, one of my best friends, who on Tuesday is going back with his family to a very dangerous place on this earth for the purpose of the gospel. Going with his children. You know, there's not a guarantee. Well, none of us are guaranteed to even get home today, but, you know, there are... There are situations that are more, you know, statistically safer than others, right? We understand this. We understand this conceptually. We understand the dangers that some enter into, you know, for the gospel. And so we need to say, Lord, give me that sort of faith. And it's not a matter of whether God calls you to go to a particular place or to do a particular thing. But don't you want to have the type of faith that's willing to say yes to whatever it is? You know, that's the type of faith we should all want to have. You know, we said, Lord, give me the faith that says yes to whatever you ask the question for. Give me that sort of faith, whether I need to exercise it fully or not, you know, into that sort of situation. That's a different story. Okay. But Lord, give us a sort of faith, but we're, we're all willing to. Now, we also, you know, we see throughout church history, we see throughout I mean, the early church of church history, people die for this gospel. We all need to be willing to die for this gospel. Now, as I say that, the majority of true followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have lived like normal life expectancy for whatever their culture is. Right? That's what's normal. It's like the statistic, like the percentage of martyrs is like, of all true believers in Jesus, is really tiny. It's tiny. Still need to be willing to do it, but it's tiny. So then the question, you know, the bigger question for most of us in our lives is how do we live, you know, the 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we have? Because again, we go back to that thing. It's kind of like, you know, in a moment to die for your loved one in a moment of crisis is actually isn't as hard as living for your loved one for 80 years. You know, to, if, you have a, if you're married, you know, to die for your spouse in a moment of, of crisis, you know, an armed robber, whatever it is, is something that you can do and you can handle. Like, 
This is what I, ha- I must do. It's an instant decision. It's done, right? But to love that spouse for 50 years, that's, that takes a different type of intentionality and is actually harder to do than that one moment of standing up under crisis. We know it's harder because a lot of marriages don't last. Right? I mean, it's just, it's harder to do that, to live well together for a long period of time. Okay, so, again, we go back to the same sort of principle here. The consistency of our life, being obedient, being willing to. You know, I hope that every husband is willing to die for their wife and die for their kids in that moment of crisis. I hope you are willing, you know, ready and willing to do that. Probably will never have to. But you do have to love them and live in a, such a way you know, that is for their good your whole life. Same thing for Jesus. Hope that every last one of us who call the name of Jesus today willing to be beheaded for his name. Probably never have to. Statistically, probably never going to have to. But, for the next 50 years, he lived faithful to his name. That's harder. That's actually harder. Can you do it? Consistently, day in, day out, for the name of Jesus. So, because I think we read these stories, we're like, wow, but we need to step back and gain perspective, you know, on it. But thank God for the faith of John the Baptist that inspires so many to do what's difficult. And that's just the other side of this. You know, too often as followers of Jesus, we're afraid to speak the truth or to speak his name because it might cost us relationally or because maybe our boss won't like that. Does your boss have the power to throw you in prison? And have you beheaded? But yet you'll, um, but a lot of times, you know, like, people will cower, followers of Jesus will cower under any sort of opposition. Don't need to do that. You know, that's the lesson there. Like, obedience to Jesus trumps, is higher than, is more important than,
past. And so they um, are in a relationship, and that relationship, in any relationship, there needs to be what? Communication. Right? There needs to be communication. And so Jesus would go to be by himself in a secluded place to pray. There's a lesson there for us. I mean, if Jesus needed to do that, what about us? You know, of course we do then, right? Um, but it says when he heard about John, he wants to go and, and, and you know, contemplate this and, and pray and to be by himself for a while. There's that need, there's that intention that he has for this. But when he gets to the other side, the people are already there. And so sometimes, again, what do we see Jesus do here? He doesn't say, hey, I need some time for me. I need to go be alone. I'm gone. No, he takes care of the need of the people that are there. He says that he sees compassion for them. There's a lesson here that we all need solitude. We all need time by ourselves, but there are times where you need it, but you can't get it because somebody, other people need something and it's not appropriate to take it at that time. We're actually going to see here in a minute that, that Jesus does get this time. He does take this time, but he had to first help these people. It says in verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the Hour is already late, so send the crowds away. They may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took five loaves and the two fish and looked up toward heaven. He blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So really about 5,000 families who ate. What did they eat from? They ate from, you know, five loaves of bread and two, little loaves of bread and two fish that we know that this little boy had. In the other gospel, we know this little boy has that. And so there's, you know, just powerful lessons here. For us, you know, the disciples are looking from a human perspective practically. It's late. The people are hungry. Send them away so they can go into villages. They can buy their food there. They can get something to eat. They can sleep, you know, whatever. But Jesus isn't always concerned about that. He's not always concerned about what's the most practical thing to do. Um, You know, and as you read the Old Testament, Old and New Testament, there's an impracticability from a human perspective to our God and the way he does things. You know, if everything in your life is practical, then you have to ask the question, am I doing all the things God wants me to do? Because he doesn't want us to do everything that's practical. There's an impractice, impracticability, if that's a word, about him that he, he, he desires us to be put in situations where only God can do it. Where we can't look back for it and say, well, you know, you and I, we just made a good decision. We made good decisions. But sometimes, you know, you need to be able to look back at your life and say, I had no idea what to do there. And it seemed the most ridiculous thing to do. 
but I was confident that's what God asked me to do. So I did it. And here's the result. He says to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now there's like, we only have, they found this boy and they go look around for food. They find this boy and they go, well, we've got five loaves of bread here and two, two little fish, five little pieces of, you know, five little loaves of bread. Boy likes some bread. That's all I'm saying. You know, he's leaving the house. You know, he didn't get like two fish, like two pieces of bread. He's like, nah, I'm putting five of these in my sack. You know, like I think this boy liked his carbohydrates, but he is, he is moving on, uh, you know, out there and they, they find this and they, they take this and they say, this is all we've got. You know, but, but you see the problem for the disciples is they have a poverty mentality here. Because they only see what they have tangibly in front of him. They don't see that they have the almighty, powerful God of the universe. They have access to the Father through prayer. And they also have access to Jesus right there. I mean, they've already seen him do all these miracles. And yet for them, they don't say, their mindset isn't, we have Jesus, therefore we have everything. Their mindset is, well, people are hungry and we've got five little pieces of bread and two, two little fish. They've got a poverty mentality about that. You know, and we can do that too. We can do that too. We can very easily look at our resources and we count up people and we count up money and go, well, we don't have a lot. We've got Jesus. We've got access to all the resource in the universe through Jesus. You know, we think... You know, old on him, you know, he's got a cattle. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. When's the last time you asked for a cow? And I'm not talking about physically, materially even. Sometimes, yes. But when's the last time, even on a spiritual sense, you asked for a cow? Say, Lord, we need this. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. We need one. For your glory, and that's got to be for his glory and for his honor, for his will and his work to be done. But, Lord, we need a cow. People need some milk. We need a cow. People need some steak. We need a cow. Let's get a cow. I like to think he's got both kinds. He's got dairy and beef on his cattle on Thousand Hills. But anyway. Um, so, anyway. Uh, I like both of those. But, it, it, you know. Um, he's got them. He's got them. And so... I mean, if he could take this two loaves of two fish and feed 5,000 families, what can the Lord do with our little bit? A whole lot. A whole lot, right? You know, it's about having faith and, and asking God and asking him to multiply what we have because what we have here is multiplication. You know, some... You know, we do have a God of addition. We see in the early church, they were added to the number, right? But also, we're a God of multiplication. More churches, more disciples, more um, ministry, more freedom, more salvation for people on this earth. So again, it's about being available, understanding who has the, all the resources 
and being willing to put out there what you have. Imagine this little boy if he says, can't have my two fish. Can't have my five pieces of bread. This is for me. This is for me. You know, he could have been stingy. Hey, it's not enough for everybody else anyway, so why give it? It's not going to do that big of a, I mean, maybe one other person is like halfway full. That's, I mean, what does that accomplish? You know, and you can do that, especially when you, you know, when, you, when you're in a situation where you don't have much, you say, well, what my, can my little bit do? Well, with Jesus, your little bit can do a whole lot. You don't know. Your little bit, that one word of encouragement you give, that one, you know, gospel of John that you give. Maybe that, think about this. Maybe you spent 25 cents on a gospel of John and gave it to somebody. And then that person comes to believe in Jesus and other family members and then generations. 25 cent investment. 25 cents. And you've got eternal life change for multiple people. I mean, that makes this like five loaves of bread, two fish feeding 5,000 people look like nothing. Because you know what? These people are going to need more food the next day. But there's a bread of life and there's a water of life that satisfies and has an eternal benefit. So you can sit there and say, my dollar doesn't matter, my five dollars doesn't matter, or my one you know, sentence of words doesn't matter. It all matters. In faith and for the Lord. And you don't know which one. You don't know which one is going to be the one that has that huge impact. That has that eternal impact. It's not about all that you have and it's not about your abilities. It's just about being available and saying, Lord, whatever you put in my hand is available for you. All of my resources are available to be used as your resource because they're yours. I mean, anything in your life you have, you have anything good in your life. Materially, mentally, emotionally, physically, anything good you have is a gift from God. It's, you're just a steward, a manager of it. It's all his. Now, that's one of the things that we really have to fight in our culture. We have to get rid of a, and, and fight against this. It's mine mentality. This is mine. This is my car. This is my house. These are my clothes. This is my food. Nah, it's the Lord's. That's the Lord's car. What you drove here today, that's the Lord's car. The house you go back to, that's the Lord's house. The food you eat, that's the Lord's food. It's all his. And he's given you stewardship of it. So when you look at something, stop saying it's mine. Start saying it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's car. It's the Lord's house. What does he want me to do with it? How does he want me to use it for him? It's the Lord's. Stop saying mine. Verse 22. So after he's fed all the people, it says, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. 
And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So he gets that time alone. And when it was evening, evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, difficult. And on the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Imagine that. Imagine being in that boat. It's rocking. It's in the middle of the night. You're waiting for morning. And here comes Jesus walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him or begged him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. So again, we see the power of Jesus and all through this chapter. We see Jesus walking on the water. We see Peter's faith that he's able to walk. And then when he, you know, again, when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks at his surroundings that's when he sinks. Man, if that's not a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Because there is so much in this world, you know, chaotic. But when your eyes are on Jesus, you handle it well. Like you walk, even in the circumstances where you shouldn't be able to. It doesn't appear you, anybody should be able to do what Peter is doing. But if your eyes are on Jesus, what can't you do? You know, you can walk with him anywhere. Any time, any place. But eyes off of him, the things of this world are daunting. And you sink. I mean, it's really simple. Eyes on Jesus, that's really good. Things are going, you're going to go really well in your walk with the Lord. Eyes off of Jesus, boom. You sink right down into all the problems of this world. And that's about faith. That's about faith, just the faith to keep looking at Jesus, just keep looking at Jesus. But there's one thing that I want to talk about here just as we close up. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of religions out there that say, you know, Jesus was a good prophet or Jesus was a God little g. And so, you know, especially anyone who respects, you know, the Bible, who says that Jesus isn't God, what do you need to show? You know, we talk about the Trinity, you know, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Word Trinity isn't in the Bible. You're never going to find it. 
but it's a theological word that describes what we believe the Bible teaches about God, that God is one in essence, that he is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that each person is distinct, and that each person is deity. Each one is God, right? And so, now on the first one, especially those who respect the scriptures, there's no problem saying the Lord, you know, the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, you know, the Lord our God is one. There's also, with, with many, there's not a problem of showing that they're distinct. There's a, some people believe in this modalism where God, you know, is, there's one God and he wears three different hats. So right now he's the father and then he walks over here, he puts on the son hat, he walks over here, puts on the Holy Spirit hat. You know, but that really doesn't make sense. As you read the scriptures, you have the scenes where, you know, the son is talking to the father. Well, is this, you know, God just talking to himself? You know, those, it, it just doesn't make logical sense as you read the gospels. But most will agree, um, especially those who say Jesus is, you know, a God or a prophet, that the Father and the Son are distinct, that they are different. All right, so really there you have, there's three, the three parts of the Trinity that you have to prove in order for it to be truth. You've got two of them. There's one God, the Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit are all different. So that's so you got those two. The third one that you have to show is that Jesus has deity. It's already going to be agreed that the Father has deity. Normally that's going to be already agreed upon because the Father is God, right? That's usually going to be accepted. So what is it about Jesus that you can show to show that Jesus is God? Well, it's this concept of worship because in the old testament you know there's one god and him only shall you serve you know scriptures tell us not to bow down to any other gods right so you have that established in acts chapter 10 you have cornelius um, and peter going to cornelius and cornelius bows down to him you know to worship him and peter says what no, stand up. I'm just a man like you are. In Acts chapter 14, in Lystra, you have Paul and Barnabas, the people of Lystra, view them as, you know, gods. This is, you know, like Zeus has come down, right? And, the, and Paul and Barnabas beg them not to do that, and they say you know, that they should worship the living God. Put away their false gods and worship the living God. In Revelation 19, when John's having his vision, he's overwhelmed before it, and he bows down to the mighty angel. And the mighty angel says, do not do that. Picks him up and says, do not do that. Worship God. So angels aren't to be worshipped. People aren't to be worshipped. Nothing, no other gods are to be worshipped. Only the true and living God is to be worshipped. And yet... Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus being worshipped. Here's one of those cases where you see Jesus being worshipped. And never once does Jesus say, stop, don't worship me. 
Now, if he is not the true living God and he accepts worship, then that's, you know, that's idolatry. That's a falseness, you know, to it. And so the question there is, is, is Jesus the true God or is Jesus a false God? Because there's only the true God and false gods. You can't have a good false God. So he is who he says he is because he accepts the worship. In fact, in John chapter 20, you know, when Thomas sees him after his doubting and he sees the risen Jesus, he says to him, my Lord and my God. And what does Jesus do? He accepts it. If it isn't true, he has to say, Thomas, don't say that. Yes, I'm risen, but I'm just a person. Or I'm just an angel, or I'm just some other thing. No, he accepts the worship. And only God can rightfully accept worship. And just so that you're clear about that, that worship um, where Jesus rebuke Satan using the scripture is, you know, where Satan says, bow down to me and I'll give you all this. And Jesus says, you know, only to worship God. That word for worship is the same Greek word there. And in all these other cases that we've talked about, same word. Can't make it something lesser than that. You can't make it just to like, you know, a, a bowing down of respect or something like that. No, this is worship. This is something only God should receive. So hopefully that helps you if you end up, you know, in some conversations where you need to show that Jesus is a true and living God. Focus on this concept of worship. Who can be worshipped? Scriptures teach clearly, only God. Yet Jesus is worshipped time and time again, and he accepts it because he is worthy. So we take that bread and that cup this morning and we remember him. You know, we worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we, you know, we worship Jesus. We bow at his feet. We say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He has redeemed us. Now, of every tribe and every tongue and every people, every nation, you know, he is, he is worthy to receive our worship. Because of who he is and what he accomplished for us at the cross. It's a shame. It's such a sad thing when people accept a lesser view of Jesus than he really is. It's a different Jesus altogether. And so we need to be confident. You You need to know what you believe and why you believe it and be able to back it up with the scripture that you can show if there's, you should be able to show if somebody asks you prove to me from the Bible that Jesus is God you shouldn't have a hard time doing that. You know, we should, I shouldn't have a hard time doing it. We should all be able to do that because it's so crucial to what we believe and people really need to, to see it and know it and understand it. And so may God help us to be faithful to him and for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your word and for your goodness to us, God. And we thank you that, Jesus, you are worthy to be worshiped. We thank you that you can rightfully accept it because you are the true living God who created all things. Without you, nothing exists. We do not exist. 
And certainly we have no salvation without you. We remember this morning as we take the bread and the cup that you went to the cross on our behalf and we give you thanks. You are worthy. And we praise your holy and precious name this morning, Jesus. Amen.